You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Today's episode is part of our Sex Series 2.0, and particularly a continuation of one of our earliest episodes, Sex in New York City. In that episode, Sarah and I discussed the vibrant sexual culture in New York City during the Gilded Age, roughly 1870 to 1890. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on one of the most famous antagonists of that sexual culture, Anthony Comstock. Comstock was an evangelical man who, through advantageous connections to wealthy and powerful men, managed to become the nation's sole authority on obscenity. For a short window of time, Comstock's puritanical worldview dictated how materials related to sexual expression and human anatomy would and should be censored. Comstock weasels his way into many of our episodes, showing just how much of a cultural force he was during his heyday. The period he was active spanned from 1872 to 1915 when he died. It's interesting to point out that the rise and fall of Comstock is capped by his attempted policing and censorship of two of America's most important and infamous women of the modern era. His rise to fame in 1873 was buoyed by his attempt to bring down Victoria Woodhull over obscenity charges for her expose of the famed and adulterous preacher Henry Ward Beecher. Comstock died while trying to take down Margaret Sanger for promoting birth control, who fled to Europe to escape Comstock's legal wrath. Over the course of his career, Comstock arrested thousands of people, ruined people's lives and businesses, and caused over a dozen people to commit suicide. He also incinerated literally tons. Like, I'm not exaggerating, tons. Tons. Metric tons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of books, pamphlets, photographs, and objects he deemed to be obscene. So who is Anthony Comstock? How did a man who was never elected to public office gain so much power over the American legal system? Who or what gave him the authority to be the decider of what was considered obscene? Let's dig in. (laughs) I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazurik. And I'm Averill Earls. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially to our auger and excavator level patrons, Colin, Eric, Peggy, Christopher, and Lauren. Y'all rock. And your good faith and donations help keep this podcast going. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Anthony Comstock is most famous for the Comstock Laws, which were a series of laws that prohibited the manufacture, sale, and dissemination of obscene materials in America around the turn of the 19th century. Now, Comstock himself was responsible for one law passed in 1873, but numerous jurisdictions passed many Comstock Laws that made various prohibitions against obscenity on the local level. Comstock was born in New Canaan, Connecticut in 1844. He was raised as a devout Congregationalist among the ancestors of the Puritans, and he takes his faith very seriously. He truly believed that the devil was all around, giving mortals temptations to sin, and if humans acted on those temptations, they would go to hell. 
And I think it's really important to let that sink in. Comstock truly believed that he was saving people's souls by preventing them from seeing obscene things. He was fully committed to the idea that the exposure to titillating images or books or the mere incitement of lust would lead people down the path straight to hell. He truly believed he was saving souls. Good for him. <laughs> I just think it's important to kind of yeah. understand. <laughs> Why like when Marissa was ask. evangelical and she was really worried about all of her friends going to hell. Oh, God. Comstock served in the infantry during the Civil War and began his purity crusade during his time while stationed in Florida. He participated in the Christian Commission, an evangelical organization created by the Young Men's Christian Association, YMCA, um, who passed out Bibles, sent ministers to war encampments, hosted prayer meetings, and attempted to use the power of the government and the Union Army to keep soldiers moral. According to Comstock's diaries, he didn't get along with his fellow soldiers. He wrote about the barracks as being dens of cursing and blasphemy. Writing in 1864, seems to be a feeling of hatred by some of the boys, constantly falsifying, persecuting, and trying to do me harm. Can I sacrifice principle and conscience for praise of man? Never. God, so dramatic. (laughs) But also very telling. So he is not a man who compromises to fit in or to go along with the status quo. He is very much a black and white kind of person. And he makes that known. So understandably, he isn't embraced by the other men in his unit. But that gives you a sense of his self-righteousness. And that seems to be pretty much his M.O. Historian Amy Werbel's in-depth look into Comstock and his impact on American censorship in her book, Lust on Trial, paints Comstock as a real jerk. (laughs) And, you know, it's not like other books and essays about him don't paint him as kind of a jerk. But reading Werbel's deep dive, and I don't know if it's verbal or Werbel, so I apologize. Mm, well, you know, like Wagner, yeah, you know, very German, yeah. yeah. Um, so reading her deep dive into the guy was illuminating for me, at least. Uh, Comstock, you know, he just seems to be this person that has no middle ground. There are like no shades of gray with this dude, black and white. Um, he doesn't seem to have a very curious mind, and he just kind of seems like a pompous asshole. I don't know. I, I reading it, I you know, I was thinking about people that I've known. You know, that that guy in the room who's just loud and talking and talking and doesn't absorb anything other than what's already in his head, right? So that's the kind of guy that Comstock really strikes me as being. I think I'm that kind of guy. Oh, good lord, you are not, or I would not be <laughs> friends with you. Oh, all right. So after the Civil War, like many young men, Comstock made his way to New York City to seek out his fortune. Now, if you've listened to our Sex in New York City episode, you'll know that Gilded Age New York is sexy. Hey, girl! It was literally the hub of America's commercialized sex industry. Prostitution was rampant and easily visible and accessible. Mm. A lot of pornographic and erotic materials were produced in New York City and circulated freely through the city and mailed out to the rest of the country. Abortifacients and birth control were advertised in the papers and easily accessible if you knew where to go. Sex was more visible in certain sections of the city, like in working class areas and around the Bowery and places of entertainment, but erotic material traveled through all social classes. There were vast differences between what was seen publicly and what was circulated privately, and Wormble's book has a ton of images of the types of erotica that was viewed in people's private homes and clubs. Um, So just some examples, there were these transparent playing cards, and if you held them up to the light, you would see an image of some dirty business. So the one she's got in the book is of a man and a woman in the 69 position. Are they laying down or standing up? They're laying down. Oh, okay. But it's very graphic. Yeah. Um, So, uh, okay, so this is another one. So people would have cufflinks or men would have cufflinks that had an image of a can and an eyeball and a screw and the letter U. Can I screw you? How many cufflinks would they have? <laughs> I know. They must have been tiny. Oh, because there's two and then two. Yeah. So oh, can I screw you? That's hilarious. 
you know, so a lot of these things were kind of jokes, right? Like, not so different than going into a store today, you know, like a sex shop or whatever for, like, mm. bachelorette party stuff and getting, like, you know, penis-shaped drinking straws and stuff like You know, a lot and of it's, like, body, and, like, yeah. jokes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, But a lot of it, too, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it's it's shocking. And I I'm so embarrassed. I don't think of screw as being that old of a, of a word. I know. I know. My, me neither. That is right. Can I screw you? Mm. And that's like, you know, 1870s, 1880s. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> They're so sassy. But this, her book has a lot of straight up, like, Porn. insertion in it. And Noise. I... <laughs> I assigned this book. I'm doing a reading at the TR site to the Teddy Roosevelt You're doing and that, like, group, site. Book, book group. I'm thing? doing a, a group book reading, and I signed this book without actually like reading it beforehand because I was kind of in a hurry. Oh, and now I'm like, oh my god, people. I totally assigned them porn. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully everybody's very mature and. Well, they're gonna be clutching their pearls. It's a bunch yeah, of old are. folks. Oh, good lord. Well, in- enjoy that conversation. So. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> So, so FYI, don't assign this to your freshman seminar. <laughs> or do. <laughs> you got to start them early. <clears throat> in, addition to, <laughs> in addition to the novelty type items, there were also a ton of erotic literature and pamphlets and the like. And as you can imagine, there were lots and lots of photographs of pornographic and titillating images. So think about how we use cameras now. Marissa, and (laughs) how quickly camera technology has changed human interactions. You know, like 15 years ago, selfies weren't even a thing, except for your dad who claims that he invented the first selfie. We all, okay, dad, (laughs) go easy. Sure. Um, Or think about how 8mm cameras were immediately used for porn and in people's bedrooms, and now things like FaceTime and those types of apps making videoing sexy time like super easy. I mean, to be to be honest, like Skype changed my long distance relationship. With oh, Dan. there you go. Yes. Um, so people like to capture naked bodies on camera. And according to Marissa, this doesn't have to be sexual. She just sends her friends boob pictures because that's a friend thing to do. Um <laughs> I, I'm glad she asks us now before she will, though. Yeah. Hey, you guys want X, Y, and Z? Nope. No. Nope. Like, the whole text stream. No. Pass. No. No. <laughs> Thanks, though. Love you. Uh, and so when photography got popular, nudie pictures obviously got popular, too. Nudie pictures. Nudies. So here comes Anthony Comstock to this literal city of what he considered sin. And he's just shocked. And so he becomes a kind of vigilante and he begins to start busting people like book publishers and distributors of erotic photographs on his own. Citizen's arrest? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, He was working as a dry goods salesman during the day, but in his free time, he, I guess, imagines himself as this kind of Christian superhero that's going out and busting these purveyors of smut. So he's like grabbing boys who are selling nudie pictures on street corners or people selling erotic books, and he's bringing them to the police station or he's bringing the police to their places of business. But he's really not getting much traction at all, and he's pretty disgusted with the lack of help he's getting from the police. I mean, the police usually are either just letting the perpetrator go, or they're even taking a cut of the profits. So, during the day, he sells beans. <laughs> I just walk, like picture him walking out of his business and, like, you know, opening up his vest or whatever, and he's got some... It's time. <laughs> I'm here to save the city. I'm here to save your I soul. I wish someone would... Uh, Make a funny TV show about it. I think this is a perfect graphic novel, to be honest. Oh, that was, oh my God. What are we doing with this podcast? I know. Anyway. Anyway, Comstock would also go around and try to close saloons that were operating on Sunday in violation of the law. And again, the police were completely uninterested in prosecuting those cases. So he became very frustrated. Sex innuendo intended. Yes. It's important to understand that there were some obscenity laws already on the books before Comstock's reign as the censorship crusader. There were laws passed in 1842 and in 1865 and a fairly comprehensive one in New York in 1868. But there was really no mechanism for enforcement. Police and judges just weren't very interested in prosecuting what people did in private, at least when it came to erotic literature and photos or what they purchased through the mail. 
On one of these frustrating trips to the police station, an officer told Comstock that the men at the YMCA branch had also been trying to do something about this spread and dissemination of dirty literature and photographs. The men at the YMCA had been holding meetings about what they called obscene literature and had formed a special committee in 1868 where they were researching and trying to find ways to clean up the areas around their branches. And I guess we should explain what the YMCA was at this point. It was a Christian organization designed to help young men new to the urban city have a place to congregate that was Christian and moral. So they were these places designed to help you kind of like kind of young, you know, like maybe this is like their first time away from home or whatever. So that young guys stay good and moral and God fearing in the evil city. So these YMCA guys are like trying to get the storefront that's next door to a YMCA branch to stop putting dirty books and pictures in the front window that are tempting these good young urban boys. (laughs) But the thing about these YMCA guys was that they didn't have a person who could go into these layers of pornographers, these publishers in lower Manhattan. These guys were way too high class to do that. They were attorneys and businessmen with reputations to protect. They Mm. needed someone who could do the dirty work of busting these pornographers. So they weren't sending the young urban new boys to do their dirty work they were like the guys who ran the ymca yeah so when i'm talking about these guys yeah like these are like upper echelon middle class Mm. guys who are having these meetings about about obscene literature so what can we do to keep these young men that are you know in our fold that we're you know our flock how can we keep them safe right so how can we police these areas around our branches to keep these young men that we're trying to protect away from prostitution and dirty images and this, that, and the other. Cool. Yes. Lucky for these guys, Comstock wrote a letter to the YMCA in 1872 inquiring about this anti-vice work they're doing. And within a week, Morris Jessup, who was the leader of this special committee, showed up at the dry goods store and hired Comstock to work full time as a vice fighter. To the YMCA. They paid him about $3,000 a year, which is roughly about 60 grand in today's money. So he got paid better than me with my PhD. <laughs> um, just FYI, Jessup lived like maybe three houses down, or Woodhull lived about three houses down from Jessup for a little while. Did they have a thing? Um, they did not. Hmm. No. He wished. He is, he is very anti-Woodhull, but when, when she was at her, her height and was making real money, she was living pretty close to Jessup. Anyway, so Comstock continues his vigilante work, but now as a full-time employee of the YMCA Special Committee. He starts to account for all the materials that he is seeing on the streets, and he starts honing his skills as an investigator. So he'll do things like follow the boys who are selling pictures on the street to see where they are getting their supply. He's basically looking for who's producing it. And he really kind of develops this underground knowledge of where things are being produced, who's distributing it, all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, he's following boys around on the street. And that's not creepy. Kind of creepy. Comstock takes all of the information and he writes it down and brings it back to the YMCA. And the YMCA prints up these special reports outlining all the horrible things that Comstock has unearthed in this city. City of sin. These reports were like pretty scandalous and they're even printed with instructions to burn them after (laughs) reading them. This message will (laughs) self-destruct. I just have this image of Inspector Gadget. Oh my god, that's the outfit he's gonna wear in my graphic novel. Go go penis. Um <laughs> Oh my god. We're getting a loopy already. Uh, so they use these burn after reading reports to solicit donations from wealthy New Yorkers who, you know, probably 
were turned on by them. Yeah, probably. Also, the special committee would have these events, kind of like a show and tell of what Comstock was up to. And, of course, men only, no ladies, no wives or anything, could come. And they could read these uh, reports, and Comstock would show them examples of all the materials he was collecting. So he'd have a display of photographs and books and these joke sexual objects. And, oh, the horrors, rubber goods. These were dildos. Comstock confiscated lots and lots of dildos. Did he burn the dildos? He did melted them down that's very bad for the so, environment yeah, no, right. Comstock. <laughs> so he'd like upset. metal things he'd have them melt down and turned into what crosses yeah, like other yeah, <laughs> rubber crosses Crosses that he'd stick on your forehead and then it would sizzle <laughs> <laughs> oh my god this guy just as Comstock started working with the special committee our favorite heroine Victoria Woodhull is suffering a bit of a PR nightmare. So we've got this whole episode on Woodhull that Sarah wrote. It's brilliant. Go check it out for her bonkers life story because it's it is if you didn't know that it was real, you would think it wasn't. Yeah. In regards to our story today, however, just as Comstock was making his way to becoming the most powerful vice crusader in New York, Woodhull is becoming one of the most infamous. So Woodhull's increasing radicalism is landing her in some, like, hot water. In 1871, she gave a speech in New York City in which she argued that women had just as much right to happiness and choice in marriage as men did. In 1871, Woodhull summed up her thoughts about free love thusly. Yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short as a period as I can, to change that love every day, if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you frame can have any right to interfere. That's... Some radical stuff. To say that a woman shouldn't be bound by marriage to one man and essentially be his to do with as he pleases. Also, Woodhull was really good at pointing out hypocrisy and used her newspaper, The Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly, to call out one of the biggest hypocrites around. She went after Henry Ward Beecher, who was a famous preacher. Oh, Beecher was a preacher. (laughs) I hope she had really funny cartoons about him too because that's just that's just like preacher was a preacher he's made for it preacher was a preacher down in all new york city beecher was a preacher <laughs> woodhull accused old beach the preacher of adultery and even that he fathered a love child but obviously probably not a loved child no. the thing was most signs pointed to that yes her accusations were true but beecher was so popular and inspirational to many people that the news backfired on her. Just a few days after the story published, Comstock showed up at the newspaper office, police in tow, and arrested Woodhull and others for printing such an obscene story. She bailed herself out because, you know, she's like famous and shit, and then was arrested again a few months later. And of course, this is all over the newspapers, and Comstock is making a name for himself as a purity crusader by taking down Victoria Woodhull. Right. So, meanwhile, Comstock is working with the YMCA. They're raising money and using this money to pay Comstock's salary. And soon, the YMCA, they send him to Washington, D.C. in late 1872 to lobby for a federal statute statute to amend the U.S. Postal Code to make it illegal to transport any materials through the U.S. mail that are deemed to be obscene. Uh, It is called the Act for the Suppression of Trade in and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Immoral Use, which becomes known as the Comstock Act. For the best. For the best. So this law is trying to get at this huge trade of obscene material that is coming out of New York City and spreading to the rest of the country through the U.S. mail. 
to the point where they even wound up in rural places like New Canaan, Connecticut, where Comstock was raised in this devout Congregationalist family. Um, And he actually writes in his diary that even in his little farm town, there were pornographic materials that were circulating around. And he saw some of these materials and they were horrible and they led boys to ruin. Mm. Um, You know, he felt that if a boy saw this material just once, that it would be like seared in his head forever. And the next thing you know, you are drinking and gambling and you're seeing prostitutes and then you're dead in a ditch somewhere. Hmm. And all because you saw a boob or two. And everything was good good until you died in that ditch. Until you saw a boob and it was all over. No, oh, feel that too. <clears throat> the Act for the Suppression of Trade in and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Immoral Use passed. With no debate, actually. And it vastly expanded the powers to police obscenity. It also includes for the first time birth control and abortifacients, which had not been specifically spelled out in law before this period of time. Now, what does birth control have to do with pornography? We all ask ourselves this every day when we think about Anthony Comstock. In Comstock's mind, birth control and abortifacients allow you to not suffer the consequences of your sins. So it all kind of goes together. The pornography puts the evil in your head, and then full of lust, you're going to go out and act with your bod, and then you're going to you're going to go do that because you know that you have birth control, so you're not going to suffer the consequences of a sexually transmitted disease or pregnancy. That's the reasoning in Comstock's mind. So Comstock and many others believe that birth control encouraged people to have immoral sexual relationships, and therefore it had to be banned. Because otherwise, people would, quote unquote, get away with it. And I mean, if you think about it, that's not really any different than what right-wing conservatives argue now about, say, free condoms in schools or even sex education. They argue that if it's there or if the knowledge is known, then it encourages people to engage in sex um, when they otherwise supposedly wouldn't do it, right? So, Mm. I mean, this isn't like, this isn't that foreign to us, right? Well, we have to start implementing chastity belts and whatnot and only eating graham crackers. Bring that back. (laughs) If you want to really put a curb on... All right, so I'm going to read you just a little portion of this act because it's buckle up. Quote, every obscene, lewd, or lascivious book, pamphlet, picture, paper, writing, print, or other publication of an indecent character, and every article or thing designed or intended for the prevention of conception or procuring of abortion, and every article or thing intended or adopted for or adapted, excuse me, for any indecent or immoral use, And every written or printed card, circular, book, pamphlet, advertisement, or notice of any kind, giving information directly or indirectly, where or how or of whom or by what, any of the herein before mentioned matters, articles, or things may be obtained or made, and every letter upon the envelope of which or postal card upon which indecent, lewd, obscene, lascivious delineations, epithets, terms, or language may be written or printed are hereby declared to be non-mailable matter and shall not be conveyed in the mails nor delivered from any post office nor by any letter carrier. So meanwhile, in another, no, meanwhile, Victoria Woodhull is still fighting these obscenity charges in New York, but she's not found guilty in 1873 on a technicality. At the time of her arrest in 1872, the Comstock Act, or uh, the Act for the Suppression of Trade in and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Moral Use, had not been passed yet. The older obscenity law she was being tried under did not include obscene materials in printed materials. Of course, you better be sure that the 1873 Comstock Act did include printed materials, as you've just heard from Elizabeth's very long reading of a section of that law. It included everything but the kitchen sink, unless the kitchen sink had a picture of a boob in it. (laughs) Then it included that, too. Then it included that, too. 
At the same time, the post office hires Comstock to be an agent for them. Now, typically, postal agents in the past, they had done things like investigate stagecoach robberies and things like that. But Comstock's appointment is a little different and that he's actually concerned with what's inside of people's mail. So now not only is he working as the obscenity police for the YMCA, but he's also got federal authority as an inspector for the U.S. Postal Service. So in a short matter of time, his power has greatly expanded and he's become a notable figure, really, but, you know, kind of on account of his high profile case with Victoria Woodhull. Mm. In 1874, the Anti-Vice Special Committee left the YMCA and incorporated in the state of New York as the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, or apparently NYSSV or NISV. (laughs) NISV. NISV. What's pretty wild about this incorporation is that New York State gives this private, evangelical, obscenity, crusading organization real state authority. The incorporation language says that the New York police must assist the in carrying out its mission. Just think about that for a second. This is a private organization that is granted police powers. This language in this incorporation forces the police to at least make arrests at the direction of Comstock, his dream has come true, who is the secretary for the NYSSMV. So almost overnight, Comstock gains both federal authority and state authority, all while never being elected to any kind of public office. Soon after the Federal Comstock Act passed, all of these, like many Comstock laws, start being passed in the states, and they are modeled on the federal law and the New York law. Comstock spends the first decades of his career basically traveling all over to different state legislatures, lobbying for obscenity laws, these little mini Comstock laws. Um, And when he went, he would bring along his suitcase of horrors filled with examples of all the obscene materials that he had confiscated. So he would show lawmakers all of, you know, all of the stuff as a sort of scare tactic, basically displaying the types of pornography and erotica that people were viewing and using inside of their homes homes, with the understanding that it must be banned so that more people would not become corrupted by these materials. Some of these mini Comstock laws made it a crime not only to sell information about contraceptives, but even to possess it or to share knowledge about it orally. Many of those laws stayed on the books well into the latter half of the 20th century. So, for example, Griswold v. Connecticut, which overturned Connecticut's law against birth control among married people, was actually a ruling that overturned one of these mini Comstock laws. Verbal's research focuses a lot on Comstock's arrest blotters. And this is where he chronicled all the arrests he made, the materials he's confiscated, and his thoughts about the case and the outcome, etc., For a lot of Comstock's early cases, courts and police were not really interested in prosecuting these types of moral judgment crimes. They tended to view Comstock as an overzealous busybody. Mm. Me too. Many of his early cases, so about 1873 to 1878 or so, he writes lengthy notes in his arrest records about how outraged he is that these people who are obviously producing pornography or selling and shipping pornography are just let off the hook again and again. This really persists uh, for about the first five years of his career, and then he starts to get some traction in the late 1870s. Concurrently, there is this free thinker, free love movement going on. So Woodhull was, you know, one of these people. Um, These are a small but thoughtful and vocal group of thinkers who are really questioning the institution of marriage and really women's subservience to men and husbands. They are advocating that men and women have equal rights to sexual pleasure and be able to choose the partners they love. So this might mean being able to dissolve unions. If both partners weren't happy, allowing people to create new partnerships with others of their choosing. Free love added a new dimension of romantic love that emphasized feelings and the separation of sexual intercourse from conception. Some even refer to marriage as a form of sexual slavery or prostitution. Now, this is just 
all too much for Comstock. This is blasphemy at its worst. So, you know, his worldview is of white patriarchy, what he considers the natural order. So anything that deviated from that natural order was immoral. It would lead people to hell and was therefore subject to prosecution. These free thinkers are all writing their ideas down in books and pamphlets, which they then print and disseminate. In 1878, Comstock is able to get a conviction against D.M. Bennett, who is a very well-known free thinker, on account of one of these free love pamphlets. The case is tried in New York under New York law and winds its way through the court system until it is upheld in the New York State Court of Appeals. So one of the questions that's arising in the courts from Comstock's uptick in arrests and policing is this question of obscene. So how does one define obscene? Who gets to decide what is and is not obscene? And so in this case against D.M. Bennett, the judge uses an English ruling as his guide called the Hicklin test. This is a very sweeping test of obscenity that basically says that anything that has a tendency to arouse improper passions in people who would be subject to those passions is obscene. So this gets rid of any kind of context or intent or discussion about the modes of production or the uses of the so-called obscene materials. Essentially, it doesn't matter who or what something is made for. If it can produce, quote unquote, improper passions in people who would be subject to those passions, it is obscene. So within this Hicklin test, all context is lost. There are no questions such as, is this material for science? Is it for physician training, for art? None of that is pertinent to this specific language of the Hicklin test. Everything is at danger of being labeled obscene. When this ruling is upheld in New York State Court Appeals, Comstock has it printed up as a little brochure. He carries copies of it around. Yeah, he's He carries copies of it around with him on the streets of New York. So if he sees something that he feels is obscene or immoral, he'll go into that shop and tell them to take it down or he'll confiscate it. He'd hand them one of these brochures with this Hicklin test in it and say, here is the definition of obscene and you are in violation of it. So, for example, he passed a barber shop that had a picture of a ballet dancer on the wall wearing a t- tights and a tutu. Comstock barrels in and gives the barber the sheet of paper and demands he take the picture off the wall because it is obscene, in his opinion. The barber uh, you know, protests, of course, but when Comstock went back a few, day- few days later, the barber had taken it down because obviously it just was not worth the court battle. So Comstock is delivering these pamphlets all over the city, and he's saying, if you don't take that out of your window, or if you don't stop selling that, here's the test of obscenity, and I'm going to be back the next day to arrest you if you haven't, you know, taken it down or whatever. And so that's when, with this Hicklin test, um, he does start to get a lot of convictions. Um, In many of these cases, the, the convictions you know, pretty much just amount to the perpetrator having all of their stock confiscated and destroyed. So Comstock burned a lot of materials over the years. Um, But people would also get a fine and a few would get prison sentences, some of them pretty heavy. Um, And as we get into the 1880s, he's definitely much more successful in the courts than he was previously. And with more success, Comstock gets more bold and starts going after artwork with nude figures. This is the Gilded Age America. Remember, this is the period of time when robber barons started amassing their great fortunes. Wealthy people started taking these European trips and they're bringing home like French paintings and statues. And because it's the French, many of them are depicting nudes. You begin to see these nudes in people's galleries and homes. And this is also the period when many of the American museums are founded. So you see nudes in there, too. These paintings and statues are very popular in Paris. So you show your cultivation and your prestige and your class by having these kinds of paintings. And that's where we start to get a huge class distinction as well, but also a target for Anthony Comstock. Right. 
For the most part, Comstock is never going to go after expensive original paintings among the well-to-do because really those are the people who are backing him and, and who pay his salary, right? But reproductions are fair game because they are, you know, like bastardized copies of originals. Now, that wasn't necessarily Comstock's view. He viewed it all, original or no, as obscene. But the political realities made it really hard for him to crack down on originals. Many of his backers were very wealthy men, and they didn't want Comstock going after the upper echelons of society. He absolutely did, however, go into saloons and bars that had reproductions of this artwork on their walls, and he confiscated everything. Sometimes he was even able to grab the real ones, but even then, it also depended on class status. For example, Steve Brody was a working class guy from Lower Manhattan who gained fame because he supposedly jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. Um... Newspapers went crazy over this story, and Brody capitalized on his fame. He traveled and did swimming and jumping exhibits at vaudeville shows and, you know, what have you. So as Brody is increasing his fame and his wealth, he starts collecting art. He also opened two saloons on Bowery Street, and he and his wife would travel to Paris and bring back paintings of nudes to hang in these saloons. Comstock raided Brody's saloons in 1891 and took 24 framed paintings, 10 obscene cards, and one album containing 41 pictures. Brody told a reporter that he wanted his pictures back, and he saw straight through the fact that saloons with nudes on Madison Square weren't being raided, just places along Bowery. Comstock raided Brody's saloons again, in 1895 and sees 70 pictures off the walls. Brody ended up spending 60 days in prison for that one. Crazy. This is ridiculous. So this also gives us a bit of insight into Comstock's personal life. 19th century socializing is really a homosocial event. Women spend most of their time with other women, and men spend most of their time with men. So Comstock is going into all of these places where men normally socialized, like saloons, and busting them up. Um, it doesn't really endear him to a lot of men. Men's socializing revolved around the sex-segregated meeting spots like clubs, saloons, barbershops, and nobody really wanted him around. Most of the things that men engaged in during this time were things that Comstock was prosecuting, like drinking, gambling, and hanging out around pictures and statues of naked women. So he's taking away the artwork in the saloon. He's taking away the gambling. So he's really not welcome a lot, uh, around a lot of non-evangelical men during the time. He tried to join the Masons and some other clubs, and he was blackballed from joining them. Um, he was married, but his marriage doesn't seem to really be a, much of a warm one. Um, but he really did kind of seem to alienate himself for most people. <laughs> Comstock, and the law's name for him, had a big impact on the legal profession. Prior to Comstock, defense attorneys had not been used to defending clients in obscenity cases, but once there started to be, like, hundreds of them, they began to develop some pretty sophisticated tactics. The first organization of defense attorneys to focus on the defense in Comstock cases, the National Defense Association, is formed in 1878. These are attorneys who support free thinking, support science over religion, and they're very much focused on improving the rule of law in the United States. They really start to build early arguments regarding the defense against obscenity charges. They also develop some legal theories about entrapment. Comstock would see an advertisement in the newspaper for like a pamphlet about what to expect on your wedding night, and he would send for this pamphlet using a fake name. Then he would wait at the post office and watch to see who was collecting the mail for the address he's just written to. Then he would follow that person back to the business or whatever, their house, and arrest everybody there. So these lawyers are starting to push back and say, why should my client be suffering when Comstock also broke the law by asking for this material to be mailed to him? Right. 
So over a period of time, defense attorneys are able to insist on expertise in the judgment of obscenity. Before that, Comstock would show up in court, often after the offending material had already been incinerated, and he would testify that there were filthy materials and juries would just take his word for it. Comstock believed that he should be able to go to court, tell the court what he found obscene. Um, He won't show it to you because it is obscene, so you'll just have to take his word for it. You know, and basically his argument is that seeing this material would be detrimental to the jurors' souls. You know, he really does believe that if they see these materials, they will begin down this road straight to the ditch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really is his argument. And and since early on, there's not really a legal precedent for this kind of, you know, for these kind of defense arguments. Judges and juries kind of just accept it. But that doesn't last too long as lawyers like the National Defense Association start pushing back and really questioning who gets to decide what is obscene. So they're asking, you know, what kind of credentials do you need to have to judge something obscene? If it's art, shouldn't you be an artist or study art to be able to judge if it's worthy of being called art versus immoral smut? Mm. (laughs) Smut. Smut. Attorneys keep bringing expert witnesses to trial who, in many cases, aren't even allowed to testify. Or, in some cases, in the 1870s and 1880s, a judge might let the expert witness testify, but the jury would be instructed not to consider the expert witness when making their judgments. It was a waste of everyone's time. Uh, however, defense attorneys just kept pushing the fact that Comstock does not know anything about art. He also starts getting mocked in the press. Artists caricature him mercilessly and lampoon him in the papers and just gets worse and worse throughout his career. Over time, he's really seen as a busybody that just doesn't know anything. And this eventually leads judges to start allowing more and more testimony. And that testimony is bringing up issues like intention and context and looking at the entire work of art and thinking about it in the context of other works of art or literature. So here's one of just a ton of examples. Um, this one's from, from Verbal's book, um, which I found just very helpful in writing this. So in 1884, Comstock dragged one of his old nemesis, Charles Conroy, to court. Comstock had arrested Conroy for selling pornographic pictures numerous times. And one time, Conroy actually stabbed Comstock in the face all the way down to the bone that left a scar on Comstock's face for the rest of his life. So this time, Comstock arrested Conroy for selling some pictures on the street. Um, But this time, Conroy had lawyers from the National Defense Association um, who were working on behalf of Conroy as a type of test case. So essentially, they're working for free. So the photo in question was of actress Annie Sutherland. The actual photograph does not exist anymore, but one of Conroy's attorneys described it. Quote, Miss Sutherland was represented sitting on a rock with the ocean behind her. Her position was a natural and not ungraceful one, and her leaning slightly forward heightened the look of earnestness which appeared on her exceptionally pretty face. The figure was entirely clothed except for the arms, which were bare. The bust even was not exposed. End quote. And we have a fairly good idea of what this picture looked like, as it was very common for popular actresses of the time to pose in these, you know, type of photographs. Um, Many of the actresses may be tight-laced in a corseted bodice, um, but practically covered from head to toe with fabric. Um, But the ensemble was often form-fitting. The clothing in the picture is described by the lawyer as, quote, the usual costume of the ballet with the short skirt surrounded by a border of fringe. In this case, the fringe was made of a chenille or some heavy substance and was put on in loops so that all around the thighs and across the figure was a row or series of these loops. So what's different about this trial? First, they actually at least have a copy of the photograph in question, right? It hasn't gotten burned up yet. Um, And secondly, the judge allows testimony from professional photographers who are basically asserting that these types of photos of popular actresses was a common and normal practice in all of, you know, among all professional photographers. It's no big deal. So Conroy's lawyers, they're really pushing Comstock on this question of expertise. Um, And they're asking him, you know, what is it that is obscene about this picture? 
And so at first, he says that it is indecent because, quote, the figure of a woman divested of her proper womanly apparel and sitting in a posture that is lewd and indecent is obscene, right? So, I mean, you can kind of deconstruct that a little bit, divested of her proper womanly apparel, right? You know, so he's thinking of huge dresses or, you know, whatever. I mean, right. this is, this is quote unquote, not proper, right? So, so, so this woman is already out of like the bounds or the norms of, of, of his kind of like natural order clothing, right? But the lawyers push him to be more specific and they're really getting nowhere. The trial is postponed for a week and on return and cross-examination, Comstock finally tells them what he finds indecent about the photo. It was the loops on the fringe of Sutherland's short jacket and the shadows it was casting look like quote-unquote private parts. Not very convincing. The trial ended up being postponed indefinitely, but it was really a blow to Comstock and his supposed expertise. However, it didn't slow Comstock down in the least. And according to Werbel, by the time Comstock dies in 1915, the court cases are much fuller in discussing the content of the work of art and allowing multiple people to weigh in and juries are actually being able to see the confiscated evidence. So by 1915, defense attorneys have really managed to convince judges that a defendant cannot be judged by his or her peers unless the peers can really, you know, evaluate or see exactly what it is that the defendant did or has, right? Um, and without being able to see that material, the judgment, a judgment is like really impossible. Right. It's important to point out that Comstock was obviously not alone in his quest for regulating morality. He's not one man, but many of a fish see... Yes. Sure. The social purity movement in the latter 19th century was a strong movement intent on the policing and control of vice. Social purists campaigned against prostitution, but they also railed against things like prize fighting, intercollegiate football, <laughs> the ballet, and nudity in the arts. Comstock's campaigns reflected the prejudices of the time. So, for example, prison sentences for men found to engage in homosexual acts were like horrendous, practically life sentences of hard labor. Comstock had very extreme views on homosexuality. Here's a quote from Comstock in regards to a question about lessening sodomy laws. He said, quote, inverts, which is what he called homosexuals, are not fit to live with the rest of mankind. They ought to have branded on their foreheads the word unclean. Instead of the law making 20 years imprisonment the penalty for their crime, it ought to be imprisonment for life. They are willfully bad, and the glory and gloat in their perversion. Their habit is acquired and not inborn. Why propose to have the law against them now on the statute books repealed? If this happened, there would be no way of getting at them. It would be wrong to make life more tolerable for them. Their lives ought to be made so intolerable as to drive them to abandon their vices. Now, of course, not everyone had such extreme views on homosexuality like Comstock, um, Unfortunately, historians like George Chauncey and Timothy Guilfoyle have shown the idea that ideas about same-sex desire were fluid and not as rigid, um, particularly in places like urban New York, as we might think. Nevertheless, Comstock's extreme view did conform to many heterosexual, middle-class American mainstream thinking. Additionally, in the 1890s, Comstock starts recording how many Jews and Catholics and Irish he's sending to prison or fining. So nativism is definitely playing a part in these convictions. The proportions of arrests and convictions are much higher for Jews and Catholics than they are for Protestants. Additionally, the rhetoric of the NYSSV becomes very anti-immigrant. They are lobbying for restrictions on immigration and restrictions against refugees which reflected larger trends among many native-born white Americans. So Comstock is definitely not operating in a vacuum here. Advocates of contraception had always evoked Comstock's, Comstock's wrath. In 1878, he orchestrated the arrest of Madame Ristel. You might recognize Ristel from our abortion and birth control before Roe v. Wade episode. She was an abortion provider who sold abortifacients through the mail. The infamous Madame Ristel began her abortifacient business in New York during the 1830s. 
She was arrested for her the first time in 1841, and New York papers pr- printed her name and occupation, which actually gave her great publicity. You know, no PR is bad PR. Um, by the late 1840s, Madame Rostel had branches in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Street peddlers would sell her abortifacient pills throughout neighborhoods, and they were available by mail order as well. Comstock uh, personally rang the bell of Madame Rostel's basement office on East 52nd Street, claiming to be a married man with whose wife had already given him too many children, and now she was sick. Rostel sold him some pills, and he left. And then the next day, Comstock returned with a police officer and had her arrested. Out on bail, the 67-year-old Restel committed suicide by slitting her own throat instead of going to prison. Fucking hardcore. It, to slit your intense. own throat instead of going to prison. It's gonna be I'm just I'm just like bonkered by slitting your own throat. Well, that's what I was gonna say is I did a little bit of research. It didn't make it into my into my dissertation, but I did a little bit of research on suicide yeah. after the Civil War. So like in this time period, and yeah. that actually was a really common way Why? of committing suicide. Except I found it mostly in men. That might be because I research men. Yeah. But it was often because they have shaving razors. Yeah. And so they would use it to slit their own throats. So Uh, I don't know. So they're not actually severing their windpipe. They're just like getting the jugular, I guess. I'm guessing. I don't know. But I I found that it was really common. And the the new book, um, uh, Aberration of Mind, Suicide and Suffering in the Civil War South, Diane Miller Somerville talks about that as well as it a, a, a common method. I think again more common for men, but yeah. See, okay, so well that actually makes me because when I think of like severing somebody's or slitting like, your own throat, I think of like a horror across, movie yeah, and like yeah. cuttering your windpipe. Yeah, but it actually makes sense if you're just cutting the jugular. Yeah. That yeah. So but they I, would call it slitting your throat, but you're actually not really slitting your throat. You're right. Like, but either way, a particularly gruesome way to kill yourself. Yeah. Right. So back to back to like Comstock's issue with with birth control. In 1914, Margaret Singer ran afoul of Comstock for distributing her pamphlet about birth control called Family Limitation. Fearing a prison sentence, Singer fled to Britain. Instead, Comstock arrested Singer's husband, Bill Singer, in January of 1915 for distributing the pamphlet. Bill Singer was convicted and spent 30 days in jail. However, this was Comstock's last court case. He died on September 21st, 1915. Phew. Still, Comstock's laws did not die with him. Margaret Sanger was arrested in 1916 for opening the first birth control clinic in America. Although several court cases chipped away at the laws, it really wasn't until the 1960s that laws banning birth control began to really be worn away. And of course, for that longer history, you can listen to our Birth Control in America series, which covers this whole span of period of time um, really well. The, but, you know, these laws stretched back almost a century, reflecting an underlying American belief that contraception promoted promiscuity. And frankly, there are, as we've said, many people who still believe that today. So it's not like Comstock's view of the world actually disappeared with time. In the span of roughly 45 years, Comstock achieved enormous power and notoriety. He was never an elected official, but gained his power through the NYSSV and the U.S. Postal Service. His arrest records prove that there was a huge amount of erotic material circulating privately, Um, I know I pointed out some of the more silly examples, but there were also a lot of very graphic photos and literature and plenty of dildos to go around. So if you're interested in seeing what some Gilded Age erotica looks like, you can check out the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. They have a great website. And also Amy Verbal's book um, has a lot of images in it, too. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, join our uh, Pod Squad, Dig Pod Squad group on Facebook and become a Patreon supporter. Uh, leave us a review because we appreciate all that. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. 
Thanks for listening. For the rest of us, throughout the rest, throughout the rest of his life. That's the fact of it. We use it very rarely for actually talking to each other. Um, TMI. 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 Sorry. Oh, no. I'll cut that later. I'll put that in the, the bloopers. All right, Wiggle. Sorry, my pants are falling now. If you're going to talk about him masturbating in the Civil War, no. No. He masturbated in the Civil War. And, and then wrote about it in his diary that it was very... I knew that Sarah was going to be like, I have to talk about him masturbating in the Civil War and beating himself up over it. I wrote about it and cried about it in my diary later that night. Yes. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> That's all I was going to say. You know me too well. Sarah wants you to know that he masturbated he in the Civil War. Wait, can I pause? Have you watched that terrible HBO show, The Deuce? No. Oh, you should. Because it's like... Your Sex in the City episode, yeah, is all the way up into the seventies. It's so it's the start of the porn industry. It starts in New York City. It's and and so it traces the porn industry from like Gilded Age up to the seventies. No, but it's I mean it's just like everything that you talk about is uh -huh. just plopped down in the in 70s. the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. with the prostitutes, the deuce. The first season is really rough to get through, and James Franco is insufferable. But the second <laughs> season is on point. Verbal's research. We are getting goofy. <laughs> like, this one is going down. <laughs> it's about boobs. <laughs> we already mentioned Marissa 14 times. <laughs> <laughs>